Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance Podcast. I'm Bree, and I am joined today by the one and only, the Miss Jane Porter. Welcome to the podcast, ma'am. Thank you so much. I love being here. Well, I should say welcome back. So listeners, just just for a, a little preface here, we recorded this once and ran into technical dif- difficulties, and Miss Jane P. agreed to, j- to chat with me again today. So thank you for that. But today's your release day. Flirting with 50 is out. Tell everybody about the book. And it's part of, it's book one in your Modern Love series. So tell us about the book, what we can expect from the series, all the details. Well, I'm enjoying these because they are romances, but they're romances featuring characters who are in their 50s, 60s, maybe mid, late 40s. It's women my age, women um, like my friends. And I, you know, in fact, I was just talking to somebody and they were like, you know, was it different writing these versus another story featuring a younger character? And actually the biggest difference of characters my age is that we have more wisdom in, in relationships. We have a different kind of patience or awareness, but we also know ourselves better. And mm-hmm. I think what you might look for in love at 20 or 30 is, is different when you're now, um, you've been working, you've had a career, or you've raised kids, or you've chosen not to have kids, for whatever it is, what you want now just is more about you. And and the kind, I don't mean an, an authentic you as if you weren't authentic, but it's a mature you. It's a you that's been beat up a little bit, or it's a you mm. that's been disappointed a little bit. It's a you that goes, okay, I don't need maybe this thing in a relationship, but I need this. And for me, all of these books have circled back around that you need a, a friend. You need someone who respects you and you need someone who will have fun with you. And um, I think, yeah. So I guess for me, the modern love aspect is what do you really need in today's world? And yeah. yeah. And the first one, I will say flirting with 50, you know, it's nothing people keep thinking is it a continuation of flirting with 40 and it's not. It's not. All new okay. characters, a brand new situation. Okay. So I have a, a, a question that I was thinking of as you were talking. So you released your first book back in 2001. Back then were romance writers writing stories with older heroines and if not what do you think has changed like what do you think you all feel you have more freedom to do that did did the romance authors that you grew up reading were they being told that was a no that you couldn't do it or was it just the assumption that nobody wanted to read older heroines like what do you think culturally has shifted? Yeah, that's such a good question because I think just like we didn't have a lot of romances featuring characters of color, there was, I think, this assumption that, and nobody really dug into it deep or tested it and experimented with sales and covers and blurbs in in a truly authentic way to have an idea of what readers wanted. It was always kind of the white heroine for the most part, you know, between the ages of 22 and 32. And that was your heroine. I mean, that was who you got, whether it was a historical or it was, you know, contemporary romance or paranormal. And so over time, I do think um, the market has been a little more reflective of, of what readers want. But also I think technology changed some of that. I think having the advent of the digital marketplace where a writer, let's say like Kristen Ashley, who's a fabulous writer, and she was going to do what she wanted to do. And she wasn't going to be told by the gatekeepers or anyone else that that would have worked 
or readers didn't want that. She wrote okay. what she wanted to write, uploaded, and the readers found her and loved it. And I think okay. that that's one of the most exciting parts of the last 10 years in publishing is that lots of creatives have said, you know what, I'm going to write what I, I want to write and let's see what happens. So I do think in part publishing is very much of a dinosaur industry. It's a it's a dinosaur format as well. And the idea, you know, no no offense to many of the salespeople, but a lot of the salespeople and the traditional publishers were all white guys, you know, and I was even told by one about when my Harlequin presents. I mean, I was at BEA and there was a big um Harlequin party and I got introduced to this gentleman and he said, Oh my gosh, I know you, you know, with presents. He said, You're the one that wrote this book where he is blind and in a wheelchair for presents. Why would you ever, ever write that? That's not what readers want. And um, he said, You're supposed to be writing about an escape and you're supposed to be doing this. And this is what it is. And I mean, don't ever do that again. Let's ignore the fact that there are plenty of blind men in wheelchairs. Right. And this <laughs> guy love. is hot and sexy and yeah. green. And she has to be schlepped to the top of this Greek mountain on a donkey as his new nurse. And listen, my former husband was a paraplegic. We were together 15 years and married 11. And um, he was hot. And he, it had nothing to do. I mean, people are, men are hot regardless of circumstances, just like women. And so I thought it was just so ironic, this older, I mean, the sales guy had to be literally like late 60s, you know, telling me with his, you know, accent that of, of what readers, women wanted. And I just think that I love in today's world now, women can assert themselves and we have the ability through, um, you know, social media platforms to engage more with readers. You know, the old days you had to wait for a letter to come or just sales. And now I can hear from people, you know, what they think and what they want and what they love. And I, I think that's really important. Yeah. To your question, I mean, would I have wanted at 30 to read about a 55 year old romance heroine? Me personally, probably not at that point. And I, and um, not unless she was, yeah, I think I had an idea of what older meant. And now that I'm older, <laughs> I don't feel old. Well, I personally love older heroines and stories because I'm like, I hope that I reach 50 and I hope that I'm comfortable in my life. You know, it gives you something to, I can never go be 20 again. You know, it like, kind of gives you something to aspire to. So I just think for me personally, that's why those, those stories are so important. It's like, I hope I'm 50 one day, you know? And I also think that these stories remind you that at any time in your life, you could be starting over again. I mean, my mom's in her 50s and she just recently graduated nursing school, something she's wanted to do since she was a teenager. But she got pregnant with me at 17 and life just happened. And it's like, I told her, I was like, you're showing me that at in my 50s, I could be experiencing this big life change, you know? And it's exciting. It's what so. you just said is exactly why I wanted to write these books, because I, I discovered this when I was 40, writing Flirting with 40, and I was appalled at myself, the resistance I had to certain changes already. Um, when I, the surfer guy that I had met in real life had said, hey, do you, you know, if you're going to write about surfing, why don't you go out and paddle out with me and take a lesson? And I'm like, no, no. And I said, you don't understand. I just make stuff up. I don't do all the things I write about. And he said, but wouldn't you write better if you tried it? I said, listen, I write about Greeks and sheiks and Italian stallions, and I don't do all of them either. So I was like, I, it's not necessary for that kind of research. But later I thought about it, I thought the fact that I am so resistant, the fact that I'm so afraid, the fact that I'm so sure I will fail made me go back later and, and 
um, say, listen, I'll, I'll go out. Let's, let's do this. And I was blown away at how fun it was and how different the world looked from the ocean towards the island. And I mean, I, I put all that in flirting with 40 and how proud I was of myself for doing something on my comfort zone. And I think that is still, that has stayed with me because that experience changed me. Falling in love with this surfer guy, which happened in real life, changed me. And I wouldn't have started Julie Publishing without it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have my 12 year old a 13 year old now without it I wouldn't be who I am that broke me out of this strange kind of suburban way of looking at who I was supposed to be and made me realize I'm kind of a bohemian artist rebel and I'd been forcing myself into this box all these years trying to please everyone and then at 40 I went wait a minute I think it's time I please myself and so yeah and that's where I think the joy of flirting with 50 came and then flirting with the beast was that we women should be special and loved and cherished at all ages not just when we're young and beautiful or whatever circumstance well in the book Paige is really comfortable with her life and then her and Dr. Jack King are they have to co-teach a course together in Australia which is such a bonus both of them were inspired by real life people in your life so can you talk about the inspiration for them Yes, I, you know, I have a friend and hopefully she won't listen, but she's really pretty and incredibly, incredibly smart. She's a whiz with math, which is where I got the idea of a math professor. Um, but she, when she goes out with me or we go somewhere with my husband, inevitably men want to talk to her mm -hmm. or my husband's friends want to be introduced. And I'm like, no. And I'll just say she's not uh, dating right now because I don't want to make a big deal. But my friend has decided, you know, she loves being single and is happy. She's yeah. not. She doesn't need anything else. And so I kept thinking, yes, but what about this? And what about this? And that became my idea. If I were to see her with someone, what kind of guy would I want for my friend? And I, I then had an idea. Oh, well, I, I need someone really kind of gorgeous and interesting. And I love Hugh Jackman. And she loves musicals. And so I'm like, oh, Hugh Jackman would be good. And then I thought she needs somebody brainy too. Somebody who's really smart and funny and who's a great single dad, like, a you know, of adult kids. And, and then I have a cousin who's this epidemiologist who has the most fascinating life ever. It's literally like fiction. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take Hugh Jackman and my cousin's career and put them together. And that would be perfect for Paige. And, and it was. Now, if wow. only I had him in real life and I could drive yeah. him to my friend's <laughs> place and go, okay, here you go. I love that because I know so many women that are like, that, that are your friend. They're like so comfortable being by themselves. They don't want to do the dating over again, the disappointment of it again. They're just so content with their life. They have their routine. Well, you know, I, because I see from my friend's perspective, I do think, you know, you don't need a man and you don't need, um, you don't need a man. There's no need to need a man. If you have friends and, and kids or family or sister that lives nearby or your mom or whatever it is, there's no reason to have to be in a romantic relationship or to have, um, you know, a partner that way. I just, I think I'm just, such a, I'm not really a romantic, but I also, uh, I, I love having, you know, my surfer guy's my best friend. Yeah. And I think it's really fun to have that best friend there where you're like, well, what are you going to do today? And you're having your coffee and you just do that chit chat. And I don't know. I think it just, it feels good. But 
obviously, you know, it's not for everyone. Now, this is a romance novel. So given given the parameters that it's a romance novel, I wanted Paige to have this relationship and this experience with Jack and see what, you know, are they going to be happy? And given that's a romance, yes, they're going to be happy. But there's a big part of me that thinks if I were ever single again, would I want to, would I want, would I want to have another person have to take care of? Because let's face it, no matter the relationship, women in relationships um, still do so much caretaking. Mm-hmm. Now, I think men do things back and, um, or there's a, you know, there's a give and take, but somehow, um, I think somehow there's, there is a lot where you do, you know, compromise and some compromises are, are good. But I think there's some compromises we shouldn't have to make. Can you tell us anything about book two or is it oh, too soon? No way. I've actually been talking about that one. I shouldn't be. I haven't even seen a cover, but it's coming out November 29th. And some of the characters that we see in book one, we'll see in book two and book three. They're, they're all from the same kind of circle. And Andy, who works at the university, um, she's the secretary for the math department. So she works in Paige's math department. She's the assistant to the department chair, Dr. Nair. And and Andy is older. She um, certainly older than Paige, but she's 58 and she has been a widow. And we see in flirting with 50, there's still times she's caught off guard by being widowed. She didn't expect to be widowed um, when she was. So I love her story and I love her story, not just because she gets the romance of this amazingly different guy. There's such opposites. Uh, he's badass former Marine who did all kinds of recon, reconnaissance things. And he just, he, you know, he doesn't, he's, I mean, even his dogs are like highly trained dogs. I mean, he doesn't I love that. up with any nonsense. <laughs> But he has a world that um, because of his commitment to his career and the years in the military, he missed a lot of parenting his his sons. And he's all three of his boys are grown up, but they've gone into different forms of armed services and they have learned from their dad to give back to their country. But there's been a price that's been paid by you know, his, his marriage and then even his sons. And then Andy, um, Andy and he are not on good terms. They both have cabins up at Lake Arrowhead and Andy's former husband and he were like enemies. They did not get along. And so it was really fun to put her up there on her own and we have a snowstorm so it's the the weather they're kind of snowed in and they have cabins near each other and the fact that they just are not on the best of terms and um and andy gets like her kind of forever ending and i i I loved it and he she gives him what he's never had in life either and I, i i think again you're never too old to finally maybe get what you didn't get before yeah so is it just like winter themed or is it going to be a Christmas romance? Well, you know, it's, it opens um, in that week between kind of like, well, it, I think it opens right around Christmas Eve-ish. Um, and it, in the epilogue, we return to a year later. But it goes from Lake Arrowhead back down and set in um, San Juan Capistrano, which isn't far from me. So Mission Viejo, very Orange County. Okay. And um, I'm a sucker. I love San Juan Capistrano. It's a very old, old California town. It's right near the mission. And so it was first started in late 1700s. And so it's very strong Spanish influence. But I have, um, I love setting it because it's one of my favorite places when friends come to see me. We go over towards the mission or we walk in Los Rios district and to put this, I don't know why, it just made me so happy to put this couple there. And again, they turn out to be more neighborly than they knew. So yeah. the beauty, I think, of an opposites attract and a hero named Wolf, uh, you come on. If you know my roots in Harlequin Presents, 
it's not a harlequin presents but it's fun you know i love a good beast story so well we're excited talking about presents we have to talk your publishing journey your first was the italian groom in 2001 with harlequin presents mills and boone modern what was your journey to becoming published like long i back then you know there was no other real alternative there were traditional publishers there were the big ones and the little ones but if you know and this is a whole um, podcast about category romance if you loved category like i did you know at one time there might have been some love swept or there may have been the is it candlelight ecstasy they had these categories of very specific um animal and it's an animal i love i love the format i love the structure i love because readers open one of those books with so many expectations and based on the line um and there's nothing like presents out there presents you know for me um i i read them as mills and boone when i was living in in europe as a 13 year old my dad was teaching for the military and we were living off base but we could go on base and they had a used bookstore um near the commissary and i would just fill a bag with barbara cartlands and the mills and boons and um you know i loved loved uh gosh my brain is gonna blank oh violet winspear and mather you know Aunt, um charlotte lamb i mean i loved oh, wow. i loved yeah. Books and I would just buy them up, and my mom was not happy at all because she's my dad were educators and they didn't think romance was what a 13 year old should be reading. But I couldn't get enough, and from then on, because I'd already always loved stories about families, whether it was Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, Little Men, Joe's Boys. I love, I love people and relationships, and so um, I thought, you know, these these are wonderful. I want to write these someday. And I did start writing my first Harlequin as a senior in high school. And um, struck I out love that so much. <laughs> I, I spent more time even my freshman year at UCLA. I spent all my time in class where they were going on that British survey lit that whole freshman year. I was always just scribbling away on another book. Um, took 13 years. Um, took 13 years to get the first book published. Um, with 14 rejected books. But finally, I will say that I sold to Harlequin Presents um, The Italian Groom. And that that was not an easy sell. I kept writing stories I thought they would want. You know, okay. South Africa diamond mine setting. I wrote a story in um, Northern Ireland. I wrote a story in Hollywood. I wrote about a senator. And so I think I, think I thought what they want is something they haven't published. Okay. And then I finally had a chance to pitch at a romance RWA conference in Dallas in 1996. And I said, listen, I see you're publishing a lot of cowboys and brides and babies. Don't you want something different? And they're like, no, that's we what we're doing. At least yeah. the American lines. If that's what we're doing and that's what sells. And if you don't like it, maybe you don't want to submit to us. But I, at the same conference, I had a chance to get in front of a Harlequin, Mills and Boone editor from the London office, Brian E. Green, who's still with them. And she said, well, you know, I, I, I understand you've submitted to us before i understand you used to live in europe if you were to write something brand new and target presents what would you do well i i came up with this idea well i guess i'd write maybe an italian vintner but set in napa valley and i would do this and this and she said well that sounds great why don't you write three chapters and send it in and it took me a long time to do that six months to a year and um but i finally did and then i got an email back and said okay send us the rest and we like it 
And so, but they said, keep in mind, um, limit the secondary characters and we don't want to see the hero and heroine apart for more than three pages. And I'm like, okay, so it took me a little bit to get my courage up because I was scared. I finished it and didn't hear anything for six months. And then, because um, that was August after the conference. And then in January 20th, I got an email saying, we love the book. We're going to buy it and we'd like to buy um, whatever else you have. We'd like to buy some more from you. Oh and my gosh. So in that time I was waiting, I'd written Christos's Promise, which I will say for my second book, I really love that one. It's classic Jane Porter because she's been in like an insane asylum for a couple of years in Switzerland. <laughs> like Jane Porter writes strange stories for presents, but I loved it. I loved how big the, the heroes could be. I loved how big the premise could be. I, I loved how not outlandish, but no one else in Harlequin was publishing those stories that had this kind of fairy tale esque quality. And um, I'm still like, I'm still a huge fan. I can't wait to write another presents. And you wrote so many. So I guess the thing that intimidates me when I look at presents and you look at it from the the standpoint of writing one is the world is your oyster you can really do whatever so how did you pivot from what you were writing then you had that conversation with Bryony of like pitch something to me to all of a sudden like now I can do whatever I want and that just seems so intimidating and I know you have you put out this fantastic book on craft um, with a, a bunch of other authors so in that time of getting rejections was there feedback on the writing specifically or was it just you're pitching the wrong thing to us no I think um, what helped was I was also entering contests and sometimes those feedback from those regional contests are, are are rough. But one of the things I learned early on was I, d I wrote a good hero. Overall, people liked my heroes. Um, they liked dialogue was fairly strong, or they'd say witty dialogue. Um, most people seem to think, you know, either people liked my voice or they didn't. That's always been a interesting. To this day, some people just don't get me. And that's fine. I don't want everyone to get me. I want the people who like what I do to like what I do. And I don't, yeah. I'm not trying to rule the world. But the heroines were the problems. The heroines took me a while. And I really, I think it puts, here's the interesting thing. The heroines I wrote in the beginning are not the heroines I write now. And it literally took me growing up and maturing and getting stronger and more um, confident to write a different heroine. Wow. Because early on, I was... <laughs> It sounds dreadful. I was marrying men to save myself. And you can see that in the early presents. The, the men, in some senses, were saving her or the men, or she was like, Christmas has promised she'd been locked up, you know, in the same place, place. And then her dad had her in a nunnery and she was not going to be married off to this um, billionaire guy. I was raised with a lot of chaos and there was a lot of pain and there was a lot of violence uh, after my dad had died and my mom had married again. And I didn't know how to change really to be honest and it wasn't until I was writing book after book after book and it hit me one day that all of my heroines end up with a happy ever after all of these women who have had a very broken path end up and I had this and this isn't what you and I have talked about before so we're just going to go there now though it really was this huge intense almost awful moment where I thought it's so unfair that they get to be happy and they're fictional characters and I in real life am not happy right and then I thought well, well wait a minute and it wasn't all like in like bursts it was over time I thought but Jane these are made up people and you in writing a book it's one choice after another you are making choices for them to be happy and you for you to be happy you 
you have to make those choices too. You have to make those choices. And it really, it changed some of my writing. Um, actually, it changed everything. And it started, I, I wrote The Frog Prince for, uh, you know, Warner, what was at the time, Warner Books, now Hachette, Grand Central. Then I wrote Flirting with 40 after I'd met the surfer guy in Hawaii. And that was even more change, huge change. And from then on, it everything I thought I knew about the world, everything I'd been taught, I realized, and this isn't blaming a parent or society. It was just the way I had somehow internalized lessons and, and things around me was that I thought I had to be a very good human being. I had to earn my way. I wasn't necessarily deserving. I wasn't really worthy. I wasn't Sounds like an anti-SNL skit from the old days where I'm good enough and I'm, you know, doggone it. People like me. I didn't think I deserved anything. And then, you know, I, I kind of had this moment I'm like, wow, this isn't true at all. I don't know what I nonsense I've been fed by the world. The women are so wonderful and we work so hard and we give so much. And where's our reward? And I was like on fire, angry. I was angry to see, because I would have women come to my book signings and tell me almost in tears, like how much a book had meant to them, or they read it and it made them, their heart hurt. And they wished they could have that for themselves, that happiness or that love. And it bothered me that is this only going to happen in books? So a lot of my writing became, you know, as my, my love, my, my dearest Megan Crane slash Caitlin Cruz, because she goes, okay, get Jane on her soapbox because she will be, she'll <laughs> preach it. She will, but I will. We shouldn't only have our happiness between the pages of a book. Right. We should all be using, if, if you need those stories like I do, I love them, but then using them to inspire you to keep making changes so that you can have more yourself. And so I think everything I write now hopefully helps encourage and empower and it validates women because I read to escape and I read um, for comfort and I still do that. But I also now want to read so that um, I feel good about who I am, not because I have certain amounts of money or because of the way you look or your age, but because I have chosen to be a loving person and I want those choices of being to love and give. Um, that's what makes that's what makes us all wonderful. And you essentially had to take your own advice, you know, like you create these characters and I mean, and, and your characters always have like these lies that they tell themselves about themselves. And then here you are like, that was, that was you in real life. And then you're seeing them get their own happy ever after. And it's like, you had to, as the person that creates this, tell yourself, I deserve this too. Well, that's the interesting thing with with writing because writing is a very dynamic thing where you're doing it and you're doing it but then at one point I, I realized by writing a certain kind of character and by writing her making different choices and by writing her breaking out and by writing it literally I rewrote me yeah and I never saw that coming and I wasn't looking actually to get divorced from you know my older son's dad I wasn't looking for that life but I got to this point and I'm like I'm not the same person and I really like who I am or if I was the same person I was a person who realized I don't need to save anyone and marry anyone to save me I don't need God's not asking me to go redeem the whole world that's not and that's not what like loving parents do. And if you're going to talk about, you know, a lot of people like to say loving God or he's like your father. Well, I kept thinking I as a mom would never ask my kids to give up their life for me. That's not, that's not what we're supposed to do. And especially I think for women, again, um, many of us were raised to like take care of others, take care of your siblings, take care of your parent, take care of something. But we're not often taught to take care of ourselves. 
True. Yeah. And we deserve, we deserve everything. And I don't mean that in a, in a bratty way, but gosh, if you don't ask for, you know, if you don't think you deserve love, you're not going to find that love because you're not going to make sure people are treating you well. Exactly. And that changed again. I, you know, uh, some of my writing, I it really changed the way I looked at Harlequin Presents. It changed the kinds of novels I'm writing. It changed my idea of a hero because after, you know, I don't want to read a book that makes my heart hurt that he's he's ruthless to her or he treats her badly. And then at the end, it's okay. I used to write some of those. They were, and those books sold, they sold really well. But I don't, I just realized I had, I had at one point lived with someone who made me feel second class. And I, you know, he was a very powerful alpha kind of feeling. And I never wanted another woman to feel that way. So I think it's an interesting thing with fiction because diehard readers read a lot of books. You know, we read and I just wanted to be sure that uh, the fantasy or the fairy tales I started with realized I went from this kind of hapless girl to like a Mulan kind of heroine. You know, I want to be out there with my swords. I want to be out there fighting for others and helping others like be strong and happy and free, not cowering in your house. So um, it makes sometimes romance. I'm not, cause I'm still a traditionalist. I still love the idea of the picket fence, but instead of it being all calm inside, it's probably running around like crazy lady and that's okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, I mean, I, I, I can imagine you've seen the genre shift a lot. I mean, I'm sure it happens quickly and quite often, but what did romance publishing look like in 2001 as you were entering into it, you know, in comparison to what it looks like now? Well, we didn't have digital, so we didn't have technology allowing anyone to be a creator. It was very much controlled by traditional publishing and the gatekeepers who said, this sells and this won't sell. You know, this will work, this won't work. Um, but it, it's a business. And I, I understand from Tuli Publishing that we have um, a responsibility here to make sure that the company stays afloat that you know you sell x number of copies because you got pay staff you have things to do i'm sorry i'm getting distracted because i can hear my husband's motorcycle out there i hope you guys can't hear <laughs> i asked him to be quiet and now he's running his motorcycle around the neighborhood. I love, love a good alpha he, alpha um, heroes in real life <laughs> real life dogs everywhere alpha's running amok um but i think so what's happened is today without some of the gatekeepers we're able to see um you know voices in the marketplace we didn't have before and i think it's about time so regardless i think we needed more representation and i think we needed to see not just the pretty blonde blue-eyed girl in a story we needed to have you know st books that represent America and books that are representative of the kids and the girls growing up in our country. So, but that includes, when I say girls, I'm talking about girls who can be in their fifties yeah. or, you know, it's not just one age. I will always call myself a girl um, because it sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the biggest, the biggest change is, you know, I'll never forget when, you know, the digital market started the big shift. Um, and right around also bookstores were, were up against each other. In 08, 09, we began to have a recession. And Barnes & Noble and Borders had been built across from each other all across the country. And they were battling it out. And Borders folded. And I remember in 09, I had Easy on the Ice coming out. And it changed overnight. Like, book orders just dropped and cut. And everything started to be in flux. And so the next couple of years, traditional publishing kept tightening their belts, tightening their belts because they had fewer places to send their books. And um, Amazon launched 
their their Kindle. Mm-hmm. And it, it really kind of wrecked havoc in many ways on traditional publishing. But it also then created this whole new market where if you write it and love it, you can find readers. But with all that said, I'm going to come back to there's still only in my mind one Harlequin Presents. I know others have tried, um, but Presents has such a long history, um, has such an old history that you can't, I can't help but look back at all of those who, who wrote for them for the last you know 60 years and think boy I'm lucky to be part of that legacy it's I'm pretty impressed by those authors I love um, Lynn Graham so much Michelle Reed was the reason I went back to writing for presents as well I'd kind of given up on it and then I wrote read um, something price of passion or the I forget the name and it rocked my world wow and the emotion and the angst and the suffering and this intense sensuality. I was like, wow, this is everything. Um, she's, she's, I mean, she was terrific. So I, I think I've never regretted a single book I've written. Um, but sometimes I, I write ahead and then I, I, I realize I'm different from what I wrote before. Mm-hmm. And readers sometimes want what you've done before. You know, I, I, for years, people say, can you give me another flirting with 50 and publish, I mean, 40 and publishers would say, I want that one. Well, the truth is I wrote that one. I can't give you that one. I don't know. I was actually quite worried about that with the new book, Flirting with 50, that readers would kept saying flirting with 40 was one of their favorites or the favorite book I ever wrote. So they couldn't wait for flirting with 50. Now I've written like 50 books between flirting with 40, flirting with 50. So I've like, today was really interesting. I'm glad the book, new book is out, but it's, it's not at all because flirting with 40 was so personal. It really was my life, my heart kind of being ripped open and me realizing everything I thought and knew wasn't true. And I'm still that same kind of person. So anyway, it's, it'll be interesting to see the feedback. Well, let's talk Thule Publishing. Yes. Let's talk Thule Publishing. So what inspired the start? Were, were there stories you wanted to tell? Yes. Were there, you know, were you seeing, you know, something? were readers wanting something that wasn't there? Like what happened? How did we get Thule Publishing? It was, it was a, a little bit of most of my friends, my close, close friends also wrote for Harlequin, different lines. So you'd have super romance, you would have, you know, Harlequin Desire, um, you'd have the uh, Mills and Boone's medical line. Um, I just wanted to write with friends. And we had this idea, like, let's do a project together. And we even talked to some of our editors at Harlequin, each of our different editors, and no one, no one wanted us. <laughs> to do something together and so we're like okay let's because of of digital the way it works we could do something on our own and we'll just make it uh ebook series or ebooks you know books and we connect them all and that's what we did we cj carmichael who'd written um lots and lots of books for harlequin lillian darcy had written over a hundred uh for both silhouette and harlequin and then me and then caitlin cruz who's writing just had just been writing for presents and she and i also wrote for the same publisher at grand central so we'd also gone back a long time there and it was just to be a friendship project and doing something fun and not worrying about what anyone else had to say we were just going to write what we thought our readers wanted from us so we were each we weren't trying to mesh our styles in any way so cj was going to deliver what she knew her readers came to her for you know caitlin cruz was going to deliver what she knew her readers came to her for which is kind of heat and smart and sexy and so that's what we did and then everybody else was kind of pulling back into their other projects and lives and I'm like wait I want to keep doing this and I want to grow our town and we need some Christmas stories so I wrote a Christmas story and I'm like I like this 
I don't know, somewhere between this weight I had and we have a full LLC and we're going for it. It went from two releases a month to all the six releases to yeah. the kid. <laughs> but that's Jane Porter. Yeah. Jane, Jane just kind of runs off a cliff and she's not really paying attention to like, is this a good idea? You know, is Every month that I get like the ARC list from Nikki, your publicity publicity girl. I, lo- I love Nikki. Shout out to Nikki if she ever listens to this. Um, I'm going to see her a little bit later for lunch. She's amazing. Okay. Tell her I said hello. I will. I'm like, how is Miss Jane Porter writing books and also like running a whole publishing house? It's just, it's incredible. But I will say something though, it, when you say about how wonderful Nikki is, that's that's the reason we can do this is because of Megan Farrell, Nikki, our great editors, um, our CFO, Cindy Parent, by hiring amazing women who, like Nikki's been with us over three, just a little over three years now. That's like, Megan Farrell's been here from the beginning. She started at book two. So all, I mean, almost nine years now and that's incredible if we didn't have Megan from the beginning stay authors wouldn't have wanted to stay so she provided stability and it was one thing for Megan to like do a bunch of stuff when you're you only have say maybe 15 authors total or you've got 60 books but we're close to 900 books now 180 authors all over the world and the taxes all over the world are very different and so we've needed special people to come in and it's not always a fit it's hard work it is because the industry keeps changing and technology changes and as the economy kind of you know retracts or expands or we have covid everything shifts um i love our team right now i'm so grateful and so when i had the opportunity to do the berkeley books i i basically needed to say to harlequin i need to take a little breather and i have you know i've never written a ton for julie i, I write pretty much two to three year max that's it and it's always been that way i usually have a spring book and a winter book and if I can squeeze one in, I can only do maybe about four books a year. I, it's just otherwise I write slower. And again, there's Thule and then there's Thule film. But that team, what we've done is I will say this, we have fantastic editors. Um, Kelly Hunter heads up all the international imprints. So everything that's set overseas, that's her area. And she's smart. She's incredible. Sinclair Sahani, who also writes for Thule, she's uh, kind of heads up all the Montana born, a lot of those stories. And we worked with Julie. Um, oh my gosh, my brain just died. Julie, Julie, forgive me, Julie. But she used to be one of the heads over at Crimson. And okay. so Julie edits for us as well. And what we've done is we've really empowered editors to say, just if there's a story, you know, you see through the submission process, because we have vetting at different stages and interns read and Nikki reads. And then as things move up, you know, do you want to fight for it? Is this a story you want to edit? And in the beginning, I used to almost pick with Megan everything. And then I realized, but I would pick something, but you need that special relationship between an editor and author where someone believes in it. And so we've changed more and more. We've become more and more like a traditional publisher than I anticipated. But now, you know, a huge percentage of our authors are debut authors. And that's where I'll be honest, I really feel like I contribute more. I Nothing is acquired without me being involved, for sure. I read and have to, I give the stamp of approval to everything. But I feel like I can contribute even more as an author that's been around the block for 20 years. Like I, I like do's, don'ts, any tips, suggestions, author branding. I feel like that's also what my heart is. Like it's a hard industry to be in and it can be yeah. hard on you emotionally and psychologically. So if I can help in some ways, uh, I enjoy that more than me achieving stuff. I really don't, when I have a success, I don't know how to internalize it. 
But if I can see others having success, like I really respond to that. Well, you have so much to be, you know, celebrating, just saying (laughs) an incredible career, a new release. You have a lot to be celebrating. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions and then we'll hop off of here. So first and foremost, if someone was new to your bibliography and this may be flirting with 50, they were new to your bibliography and they came to you and they said, what is the one book that is like the starting point? of Jane Porter's backlist or bibliography, what title would you recommend? I would pick one that I would say is definitively Jane Porter. Like I feel this way about the November book because this is my heart on paper and it would lose me a lot of readers right away, but this is, I'm going to put them through the fire. It would be probably Miracle on Chance Avenue. Um, It's just like the Kidnapped Christmas Bride is another one. These are books where everyone hurts it's the i know there's a song out there like everyone hurts but it's a it's a story where i don't like to start with a story where people are okay and then break them and then end up okay i like where they've kind of been broken we're starting there and through the story they are healing and healing and healing and like it's redemptive so by the time we come to end it's like the full gospel choir is going off and we have love and joy and we're we're good we are so good i i hurt if I have to read people who don't see it coming, like having the car accident, the kid dies, you know, everybody's in the fire. Like, I don't want, yeah. but I know what it's like to be in one. So those stories, like I love the Miracle on Chance app because I didn't write that one. It's about Rory Douglas. And if you had seen him in any of my Sheenans, or if you knew from um, The Kid at Christmas Bride, which was featuring his sister, there was a tragedy in this Douglas Ranch years ago. And it feeds through a lot of Marietta stories. I waited so long to write that story. And I was scared to write that story because he had had such a tragedy in his life. And I was afraid to touch it. But at the same time, if anyone needed a happy ending, a happy ever after, it was Rory. And so the story and the the heroine in that one, same thing. And she was there kind of part of periphery the night everything went terrible and she has kind of loved him from afar all these years and in her own terrible way felt responsible even though she was just a little girl you know 13 year old girl so anyway that kind of story where often there's an under underlying faith element Mm -hmm. where love does um heal and there's a goodness of god or believing in if you can't believe in yourself you believe in someone else and that faith gets you so I would say I love, um, I call them achy, breaky romances, but in the end, you know, I don't want it miserable, you know, yeah. I, but I love, I love that redemptiveness where, and maybe that's why I love Christmas stories. Almost all of my Christmas stories have something where this might not have happened any other time of year, but at Christmas, you know, anything can happen and the angels sing and we're going to be, we're going to come in and it's going to work out. So. I love a Jane Porter Christmas romance. Just saying, tell us one of the toughest pieces of advice you've ever received? Well, it came probably from traditional publishing. And which is why I really embraced Thule, which was, you're not the chosen one. You know, you, I was working too hard promoting a book of mine and um, hustling and contacting TV stations and radio shows. And I was getting a lot of publicity, but I was told that it was taking away from the others on the list higher up. And that wasn't, that wasn't it. And they had one big, they had other names that they wanted everyone to focus on, not me. And I think that that caught me off guard because until then, I thought we all had a level playing field and we were all going into it with a fighting chance. 
I didn't realize until then that the publishers already know who they want to be there. You know, it's based, your success is, you know, based on your print run. If you don't have a huge, huge print run, you're not going to get, you know, huge sales. And if that huge print run means your local Barnes and Noble shouldn't have two copies, it should have, you know, 20 to 150. So once I began to see the other side and I knew, um, I thought, okay, but it, it did make me realize and appreciate all the indie authors who had said, you know what, I'm not going to play this game. It's not because they don't have the craft, but there is a definite game. And there, and for me, I just want to be read. I don't care the format. I really don't. I love reading. I prefer reading on my phone. It's always with me. Anywhere I go, I can start reading again. Um, you know, I, I don't care what the format is. So whether you find me in a mass market at Walmart, like with Flirting with 50, or you find me as a ebook or you find me, you know, in a bookstore, I just want people to read me. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing too, because authors all have their own opinions and there's egos and it's competitive. And that's probably my least yeah. favorite part of this business. And unfortunately, like as a reader and a, a lover of the genre, that is something you can see, I think, with new authors sometimes, because, you know, social media is a thing now. And it's sad when you, as even as a reader, you can see some authors, you're just like, this is not the right business to not have a thick skin or really understand there's a business side to this, you know, and it's kind of sad when you see those feelings and emotions being put out there. And it's just like, I'm not an author, but I'm assuming you are not in the right business if you can't handle the bad news of your book didn't do well or whatever. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting because I think one of the only times I was frustrated really with the indie world and I remain frustrated is when people talk about the money. Oh, I'm making so much money as if to justify why they're not traditional. Listen, I don't, I don't write for the money. I mean, right. I, and I don't say it's bad if you do, but I think it should be focused for me always on the story. Like I, I read because of the story. I don't read because of somebody's status or name or money. I don't care about that. I just want a good story. So wherever you can put your story to get in front of readers, that's what you should do. Exactly. And so you might not find it in traditional and you might need to go to a smaller house or you might want to be self-published. But again, you're always going to get reviewed. Those reviews can hurt. So you have choices too. You either read the reviews and see what people like or dislike, or you just say, I don't care because there's a lot of people who like my stuff anyway, and I'm going to keep writing. And, you know, if you're not happy in one area, it doesn't mean you won't be happy in a different aspect of publishing, you know, but to me, don't get into this for the money. Do it because you're a storyteller. You have something to say. Yeah. And then regardless of the outcome of what others say, you just got to keep reminding yourself, I, you, you're doing it because you, you're giving a gift to readers. You're giving something to the readers. So focus on the readers. Stop exactly. focusing on the competition or what others are getting. Because I'll never forget when I, I was wanting to be an actress when I was little. I was a dancer, actress, and writer. I was, I was going to do it all. And I had said to my mom, you know, I really want to graduate from high school early and go to LA and get an agent and do more acting. And she had said, well, you have to take you know, that high school equivalency exam first. And if you pass, we'll talk about it. Well, I was 15. I passed. And I said, okay, can I go to LA? And she said, hey, no, you can't. <laughs> and I said, but mom, and she said, listen, because at the time, this was in the 80s. And she said, you are, um, you're not as pretty as Brooke Shields. You're not as talented as Jodie Foster and you don't have the connections of Tatum O'Neill. And she said, you, there's no way you're going to make it. It's just, you're not, you're not. And I think the truth is she was right. 
but in publishing today, there is space for everyone. If you're disciplined and work hard, if you yeah. want to be a storyteller or a writer, you can do it. And, and, but conversely, you got to put in the work then. And yes. if somebody falls in love with your books, I got to be honest, they don't want just one from you. They want more, they right? Want more. <laughs> like, I hate to find a favorite author. I'm like, I, oh my gosh. And then like they wrote two and they're gone. Yeah. I'm like, don't do that to me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, knowing what you know now, what advice would you go back to 2001 Jane Porter and give her? I would tell that Jane, hold on because your life's going to change. And it did. I, you know, I spent 13 years trying to sell a book and, but it, it's just going to get better and better. I, I would also say, and hold on because if you do well, it might make people around you, you know, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I was married at the time and he, he didn't want me to be successful. And I think, honestly, I was asked at one point, if you hadn't ever sold, would you have stayed married? Probably. That um, selling to Harlequin just shook the marriage down. And me wanting to go to writers' conferences and book signings, that wasn't, you know, it's fun to be married to somebody trying to do something. But but also, I will say, if I wasn't the Jane Porter, which is my real, my real name, and I had kept it for books, that saved me when I went through the divorce. And I lived in suburbia, and I was kind of cut off. I was now this bad person in in suburbia, you know, a a bad wife, bad woman, bad mom. And yet I could go to a writer conference and still be Jane Porter. And that was huge. I had this other identity that didn't depend on the mom world, you know, or the wife world. It was just me. Um, Kind of readers and writers saved me when I lost that whole other framework. So I'm, I'm a book girl, you know, through and through and through. So talking to you, Brie, though, because you're a book girl through and through is really cool. Thank you. (laughs) Well, lastly, tell everybody where they can follow you online. Oh, I'm the usual suspects, uh, Jane Porter on Facebook. Um, I'm author Jane Porter, I think on Instagram. I think I'm probably author Jane Porter. I love Pinterest just because I like pretty pictures. Isn't that really pretty much? Oh, I, I do have a reader group on Facebook. It's not huge. I forget to communicate sometimes. I don't know where I go in my head. I think I may be telling stories. You know, Um, writing stories, getting films adapted, you know, books adapted to film, running a business, you know, (laughs) just being a mom. (laughs) I will say the next Christmas book that I need to write, I have to finish the current one because it's already been picked up for film and they're waiting to turn it into a screenplay. And that will be my coming up Christmas book for Julie, um, Once Upon a Christmas. Oh my God. So I am busy, but... Honestly, I have been reading so much. Please don't tell any of my editors or publishers why books are late. I just have been on a roll and I'm so happy. I I also even look at my watch and go, oh, it's 2.30. Should I give myself permission to read for an hour or two before? (laughs) The answer should be no, but... Well, the reader in me is saying yes, but also knowing all the things that you have going on. I understand, but it's good that you read on your phone. Cause if you have a minute, you can just like sneak a look. Yes. I just a couple pages. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Listeners, make sure you check the show notes. I will have links to all the places where you can keep up with the Miss Jane P. We finally got her on the podcast as well as where you can get your copy of flirting with 50 and be on the lookout for the next book. What is the next book's title? It's in November, right? Flirting with the beast. Flirting with the beast. Flirting with the beast is coming out in November. You also be on the lookout. We will have all the links in the show notes. Miss Jane P will be back and we can't wait. 
Thank you, Greg. Let's come back in November and talk about that beast. Yes, shall we? we will okay. be. It will be beast November. All right, everybody. We will chat with you in our next episode. Have a lovely day. Thank you for listening. Bye.